0: This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's
2: nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes.
1: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. However you find this show, whether it's on podcast, platforms, terrestrial radio, satellite radio, our streaming service, CBSN, thanks for joining us. For those watching on CBSN, you might notice I'm in the big D.C. studio, home of CBS Evening News and Face the Nation. Before we do anything else, I want to thank the crew for helping us do this here on the set with me and in the control room. Without further ado, I want to introduce our special guest, Dr. Anthony Fauci, his chief medical advisor to President Joseph Biden. Dr. Fauci, welcome back to The Takeout for your third episode. It's great to see you.
2: Thank you, Major. Always great to be with you. Thank you for inviting
1: me. A big picture question. We're going to get into some of the details in a minute, but a very big picture question I want your thoughts on, which is this. How can you contextualize for my audience the fact that this week we passed a milestone? More Americans died of COVID-19 than in the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 and 1919. How do we wrap our heads around that?
2: Well, first of all, that number in and of itself no matter what you compare it with is is a daunting and very very i believe depressing and horrible number to see so many americans die from an outbreak the pandemic flu of 1918 is historic i mean you all refer to that you know as historically the mother of all outbreaks it killed you know 50 to 100 million people worldwide and 650 or so thousand people in the United States. The population of the world at that point, Major, was one-third what it is now. So on a per capita basis, we are not even one-third to where we were then. However, we shouldn't then say, well, it's okay, and diminish it. 670,000 deaths is extraordinary. And and the thing that that has to be linked up with is we don't want that to get any worse. And when you talked about contextualizing, it's important that back in 1918, they did not have vaccines. We now have a highly effective tool to blunt this outbreak and to essentially crush it if we get ourselves in this country and the rest of the world vaccinated. So there's a similarity in the extraordinary number of deaths in both of these now historic pandemics. But a really important difference is that we have a tool now that we did not have back then. That's the reason why it should impress upon everyone who's listening to us now realize why it's so important to take advantage of that tool.
1: When this began and you were there when it began, did you have any inkling or even a small bit of fear that we would reach this number?
2: I had a fear that we would have a pandemic. I have to be totally honest with you, Major. I had really no imagination that we were going to get into the several hundreds of thousands of deaths. So this, this outbreak, really, as we said correctly, is the worst that we have seen on this planet in well over a hundred years. We always talk about 1918 in the context of a terrible chapter in the history of infectious diseases. Unfortunately, we are living in such a chapter now, and people 50, 100 years from now are going to be looking back at this talking about this historical, terrible pandemic that claimed so many lives, not only in the United States, but worldwide.
1: And when they do that inquiry, Dr. Fauci, they're going to want to know as much as can be known about how it got started, where it got started. What is your belief right now on the lab leak theory from the Wuhan Institute of Virology?
2: well you you must always leave all possibilities open and 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 address it with an open mind. But if you look historically at how outbreaks have occurred, Ebola, swine flu, SARS CoV one, mers and those other outbreaks, the circumstances under which this occurred, namely, Uh, in a region of the world where we have that animal-human interface, that it is more likely, in my mind and in the mind of most of the evolutionary virologists, that it is more likely a natural occurrence of a jumping of species in the environment, in the animal-human interface. However, since you have not yet definitively proven that, You must always keep an open mind of the possibility of what you just mentioned, a laboratory leak or someone who was out doing research in the field who got infected while working with a pathogen in the laboratory, those are all possibilities. There is no evidence to indicate that that's happened, but you still must leave an open mind.
1: There were two grants from the National Institutes of Health into investigatory work in the field in the Wuhan Institute of Virology and another institution there. Have you run to ground what those did or didn't do in terms of creating any atmosphere in which a leak could have occurred or might have occurred?
2: Well, the grants that was funded were, were to do surveillance in the environment to ask and answer questions that I just mentioned. When you go out, do you see any viruses out there that could potentially evolve to infect humans? And do you do surveillance among people in those areas in China to see if there's any inkling that under the radar screen, such viruses may have been circulating? Uh, In fact, one of the papers that came out from studies, from that grant was extremely important in putting a definitive uh, stamp of understanding of how the original SARS-CoV-1 was able to evolve. So those were questions that got a high priority in peer review to do the research to try and understand that.
1: And to those who think there might be some type of scandal or something incorrect or ill-advised about those grants, what would you say, Dr. Fauci? Well,
2: what you do, Major, is you take a look at the viruses that was worked on under the auspices of that grant and what the grant was directed for, and you look at the publications that came from the research associated with that grant. The viruses that were worked with in that environment, in that particular context of that grant, could not possibly molecularly have evolved into what we know now as SARS-CoV-2. Because when you look at how you can go from one virus and do something with it to get to be another, the viruses that the grant allowed the investigators, competent investigators to work with, molecularly were so different than what ultimately came out to be SARS-CoV-2 that anyone that looks at those two viruses, who knows anything about evolutionary virology, will tell you that they're so far apart that you couldn't possibly have had it emerge into that particular virus. I know that sounds kind of complicated for a lay audience who's not used to thinking about vi- virology, but... If you get evolutionary virologists, the people who have no agenda, who just are the experts in the field, they will tell you that with a great degree of confidence.
1: Real quickly, no regrets about those grants.
2: Well, the only regret is that what, what it has caused right now is such a, a, a degree of distraction of trying to do what we really should be doing, is addressing the outbreak and what we did, and did quite successfully, was to develop vaccines that have now been life-saving. That's what the job of myself and my team and my institute is, and thankfully we did that very successfully. All of that other thing, Dr. Fauci. Let me,
1: let me Dr. Fauci. Let me go to break real quick, and then I'll come right back to you. I promise you, go go to break okay. real quick. I'm Major Garrett, back for segment two of the Takeout with Dr. Fauci, chief medical advisor to President Joseph R. Biden. In a second, I'm Major Garrett, back in a minute.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, if you would be so kind, could you compare working with President Trump with President Biden?
2: Yeah, well, Major, it's an entirely different uh, approach towards uh, the outbreak uh, in the sense of we have a, a team Uh, of people at different levels with different areas of interest and expertise uh, addressing the outbreak right now. So I am the chief medical advisor to President Biden for COVID-19, but I also work on a very close daily basis with the Surgeon General, with a variety of other individuals, with the director of the CDC, literally on a daily basis. Uh, so it is a, a total immersion in addressing this outbreak. Um, I mean, obviously, there's no secret that I had to, under certain circumstances, come at odds with my opinion of certain scientific issues under uh, President Trump. I didn't enjoy that. I had nothing at all against him as president or as a person But I had to speak out when things were said that were just scientifically not true and that projections were made that were quite unreasonable, such as the epidemic is going to go away. It's going to disappear. That certain drugs, which were touted as being effective, but were never proven at all under any circumstances to be effective. So that was uncomfortable. I didn't enjoy that. Whereas now. what we have is, you know, things don't always go right, but it's always focusing on the science as the fundamental basis of the decisions you make now under the current situation. And again, things don't always go the way you want them to go, but at least you know that you can self criticize and you could do better and you could make sure that what you do is always founded on fundamental scientific principles. And anecdote doesn't work. And one of the things that was a bit disturbing in the prior situation was anecdotal things were given almost as much weight as scientifically proven things. That, I think, was something that I had to speak up against. And unfortunately, that triggered a degree of uh, animosity towards me um, that you know well, we don't need to rehash that, animosity, not only within the environment of the White House, but among the numerous followers of the president. So I became sort of the boogeyman for people, you know, who were very much pro-Trump and very much against me. And it was silly because it isn't me against the president. I was not against the president at all, not at all. And I've never said things derogatory about him. I've always felt I just had to speak up about the fact that I did not agree from a scientific standpoint, which was was being done. That was not pleasurable for me.
1: I'm sure not. Uh, You mentioned a moment ago, Dr. Fauci, that sometimes things don't always work out. I wonder in retrospect, if President Biden's declaration that we have won our independence from the virus in and around July 4th was either incautious or borderline hubristic.
2: Well, I don't think so. I think what it was is that we all got hit badly and taken by surprise, Major, by the Delta variant, which was just, I mean, just when you think things are really bad when you're dealing with a historic pandemic, along comes a variant that has such a strong capability of efficiently spreading from person to person that it breaks all the rules and pushes everything aside and completely dominates. picture. When we were talking about hopefully being, as it were, independent from the virus, because we had a vaccine that we were implementing quite well, at a good pace, um, but we had a variant, the alpha variant, which really was not very, comparatively speaking, nowhere near the transmissible capability of the delta variant so what can understand how you hoped for and would have wished and could predict that we would be doing very well and then all of a sudden comes this delta variant and bingo all your plans are turned upside down that happened and that's what i mean that sometimes things don't go as well as you'd like and we readily admit
1: as you might remember when he was running for the presidency Candidate Biden said that he would take office if he were elected in a dark winter. That proved to be true. The winter of 2020 into 2021. Will the winter of 2021 into 2022 be equally dark? Major,
2: it does not have to be. And that's really the difference now, because we now have, even with the Delta variant, the vaccines that we have are highly effective and safe yet we still have about 70 million people in this country who are eligible for vaccination who have not yet been vaccinated. Some have reasons that when you speak to them and answer their questions, they'll change their minds. Others, for reasons that appear to be ideological and perhaps political, just don't wanna get vaccinated. There's no room for that when you're dealing with a public health crisis. So if you're asking me, are we gonna have a dark winter? You know, if we don't get the people vaccinated who need to be vaccinated, and we get that conflating with an influenza season, we could have a dark, bad winter, but we could also avoid a dark, bad winter if we get people vaccinated to a very high degree over the next several weeks to a month or two.
1: We are understandably focused on the Delta variant. There is another variant, the Mu variant. Earlier this month, you said it was not an immediate threat. Is that still true?
2: It is not an immediate threat. It has some mutations that when you look in vitro in the test tube, it can elude antibodies such as monoclonal antibodies, antibodies associated with convalescent plasma, antibodies associated with post-vaccine sera. It is potentially capable of doing that. However, it is such a very small fraction of the isolates in this country that that's what I mean when I say it's not an immediate threat. You have to keep your eye out on it and watch it very carefully. But the Delta variant is completely crowding that out. It's kind of like the big bully on the block that doesn't let any of the other variants in because it so efficiently spreads from human to human.
1: So before we go to break, I've got about two minutes and we're going to have a longer conversation about this on the other side of the break. But I want you to get us started. Can you, Dr. Fauci, as succinctly as possible, explain to Americans how they should think about booster shots who now qualifies and who should plan ahead to receive them, and why?
2: Um, Well, Major, that's, that's a good question, but it's going to be an evolving answer because you're asking what's available now, and I will tell you in a moment, and what is projected to be available and what is projected to actually occur over the next several weeks to months. Right now, the FDA, literally as we are speaking, is making a final decision of a recommendation not a recommendation, but an actual approval or authorization for the use of boosters under certain circumstances for a single company. And that's Pfizer, because Pfizer has already submitted the data, which has been analyzed by the FDA and by their advisory committee. And the initial uh, recommendation that we heard, and it isn't final yet, but will be soon, literally uh, Unfortunately, in the next 24 hours, we may not get the answer during this discussion that people 65 years of age are older, and those who are in the category of being at a high risk for severe disease due to underlying conditions, as well as those whose occupational and institutional exposure make them at a higher risk. Of infection.
1: Let me stop you right there, Doctor Fauci. Let me stop you right there because that's a good place to hold. We will pick up this conversation about the next phase of booster shots and why when we come back. More with our conversation with Doctor Anthony Fauci. I'm Major Garrett. Segment three, the takeout in just one second.
0: Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas, and you don't know where to start. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. From CBS News, this is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome back, and for those of you keeping track at home, just so you know, because Dr. Fauci referred to some time continuum that we might be in in terms of Food and Drug Administration action, we are recording this on the afternoon of September 22nd. Keep that in mind as things may transpire that you see in your headline feeds because Dr. Fauci is talking about things that might happen the next 24 to 48 hours, so just keep that in mind. So, Dr. Fauci, continue your conversation about where we are and where we're heading.
2: Well, the FDA will make imminently... Uh, a statement as to what they will authorize in the arena of booster for people who've gotten Pfizer as their initial vaccination. They then will have the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which are meeting today and tomorrow, make a determination of what the recommendation of the use will that be. What is going to happen literally in the next few weeks to a month, as more and more data comes in along two lines. One, does the efficacy of the original doses that you got, be it mRNA with Pfizer or Moderna, or the J&J vaccine, will the efficacy against infection and against hospitalization, which represents severe disease, Will it continue to come down, which it is doing? It is more so in Israel because Israel is a, ahead of us by about a month, a month and a half, and they're seeing it come down significantly. And the decisions that will be made over the next few weeks are gonna be, A, does it come down enough that you would even have younger people get boosters who are in the categories that the FDA mentioned? Right now, there's a concern about younger people, particularly men, because of a very rare adverse event called myocarditis that we're connecting enough data to see if the risk benefit of doing the booster is worth it. I believe likely it very well will be, but we want to wait for the data. The other thing that's going to occur in the next few weeks is that Moderna and J&J will be submitting their data to the FDA to get them to rule on the authorization of boosters for those products. So the thing that people are reading about now and listening to today is for Pfizer. But remember, a lot of people got Moderna and fewer people got J&J. Those two products will undergo the same scrutiny in the next few weeks regarding boosters as we're talking about now for Pfizer.
1: As I understand it, Dr. Fauci, the NIH is conducting research on so-called mix-and-match studies. Is it possible that those data, the data from those studies, however, will show that it's possibly not safe or effective to mix-and-match your vaccines, meaning you should stay with precisely the kind of vaccine you originally received.
2: Well, you're correct that we are currently doing mix and match studies with all three of those products. We already have data from the Moderna mix and match. In the next couple of weeks, we'll get the data from the J&J and the Pfizer mix and match. For your audience, mix and match means if I get Moderna as my primary and second shot, can I get a and j or a Pfizer for my boost and vice versa among all those combinations. We don't project, Major, that there is gonna be any difference or any signal of concern to do that. But before we opine on it, we wanna do the study to make sure. And as I mentioned, in a few weeks, we will know whether it's safe and whether it induces the kind of response that you would predict would give a good boost.
1: You mentioned myocarditis a minute ago. Uh, There's also something associated with a booster, Guillain-Barre syndrome. And the Lancet had a conversation about this saying, while the evidence is clear that getting a vaccine up front is by far the best way to deal with the Delta variant in particular in COVID-19 generally, there may be risks associated for these two afflictions, myocarditis and Guillain-Barre syndrome in the booster shot sequencing. Where are you on that?
2: Well, that again gets to what's called the risk benefit assessment. What you calculate is what is the level of these two afflictions, myocarditis and Guillaume in the general population unconnected to vaccine. Then you say, what is the incidence of it when you get vaccinated? Thus far, with both of those, the risk of getting infection and or that complication is far greater than the risk of getting it from the vaccine And so the recommendation overwhelmingly is get the vaccine, even with that rare risk, you are better off getting the vaccine because the infection itself, and you have to calculate in what your risk of the infection, but the infection itself has a much, much greater risk of myocarditis than the vaccine So you do a mathematical calculation of does the benefit far outweigh the risk? Thus far, with the initial two doses, it was determined that the benefit clearly outweighs the risk. What we want to know right now, and we're collecting the data, is is that also true for the booster? Does the benefit far outweigh the risk? And that's what we're determining now. For young people, Remember, when you're talking about myocarditis, that's very heavily predominant, if you get it, in younger people, usually men.
1: You mentioned uh, monoclonal al- uh, antibodies a moment ago. Um, they are clearly useful. Do we have enough supply of them? And have there been supply disruptions and Maybe should other states follow the agency recommendation that you made to ration them as a state like Tennessee has done?
2: Well, first of all, in the beginning, when we showed in the clinical trials that the monoclonal antibodies worked because of the fact that you generally have to give it intravenously and in a hospital setting or in at least an infusion center where you have the capability of starting an IV it was not used as much as we felt it should be used because it is an effective therapy if given early in the course of infection to prevent people from actually getting severe enough disease that would require hospitalization. But then it became clear that as you allow, if you get it to be more easily accessible and people started to catch on about its benefit, there was a lot more demand for it. And that's what we're seeing right now. So we want to make sure we keep up with the supply. I don't know if I could comment about rationing because I haven't been following that as carefully as I might to make a statement
1: about it. Let me ask you about the ethical implications of monoclonal antibodies for the unvaccinated as opposed to those who have been vaccinated but get a breakthrough case.
2: You know, you should make monoclonal antibodies available to people who get infected, whether or not they're unvaccinated or vaccinated. You don't uh, discriminate against somebody because of their choice of getting vaccinated or not. You'd like to see everybody get vaccinated, for sure, but you don't want to penalize someone because they haven't gotten vaccinated. You treat each person who gets infected as an individual who deserves the best possible care.
1: More with our conversation with Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the chief medical advisor to Joseph Biden, president of the United States. One of the things we're gonna talk about in segment four, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, the whole mandate issue. I'm Major Garrett, back for segment four for the takeout in just one second. Man, that
0: sunset is gorgeous. CBS News. This is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, I'm not telling you something you don't know. There are plenty of people who say, well, he was against masks, then he was for them. And he said there will be no mandates, and now he's essentially embraced them. You talked earlier about how the science and the recommendations evolve. For those who are critics of yours, I'm giving you an open floor to describe what they criticize and your perspective.
2: Okay, Major, well, thank you for that opportunity. Let's start off with the masks. Uh, Very early on in January and early February, when we had literally very few cases that we recognized in this country, the question of should we be wearing masks? That was in the context of three things that people need to understand. At the time, there was no indication that outside of the hospital setting that masks actually worked. Number two, we did not fully appreciate at all that a very high percentage of the transmissions were occurring from people who did not know that they were infected and were inadvertently transmitting it to uninfected people. Number two, And number three, it was said that there was a shortage of surgical masks. And if we started getting millions and millions of people to buy up masks in the context of, A, not knowing whether they work, and in fact, in a situation where we didn't even know that the virus was spread asymptomatically, that buying them up like that would take away from the people in the hospitals who really need them because they are at close contact with people who are infected. And under those circumstances, I said, that in fact, I would not recommend wearing masks. What changed to make me change my mind? And that was the science evolved. And that's what I mean. I know there are detractors who push that aside and say, no, 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 you just flip-flop. Well, flip-flop this or you change your mind when nothing else has changed. But when the science changes and you change with the science, that's not flip-flopping. So let me explain to you what happened. A, it became very clear that there's not a shortage of masks because cloth masks that could be made by the hundreds and hundreds of millions were readily available. Number two, it became clear from meta-analysis studies that masks actually do work outside of the hospital setting. A number of studies have shown that now. That's the next thing. But the real thing that changed was the full realization that, oh my goodness, 60%, 59, 60% of the infections that are transmitted are coming from someone with no symptoms. So you can't just walk around, think you're not spreading the infection. You may be inadvertently spreading it, because you have an asymptomatic infection. Those were the three things that changed. So when I say, Major, even though not everybody relates to it, that the science changed and our recommendations changed with the science. I might add one other thing, if I, might, if I may, uh, Major, that they tend to personalize it with me. I was not the only one that was saying, you don't need to wear a mask. The Surgeon General of the United States was saying it. The CDC was saying it. But since I've become, as I said uh, a moment ago or a few minutes ago, kind of the boogeyman of some people, all of a sudden it was me who flip-flopped. When it wasn't, the entire system changed based on the science.
1: And walk my audience through the evolution on vaccine mandates.
2: Well, vaccine mandates, you know, I've always said, um, and I still say that we're not going to see vaccine mandates centrally. The president is not going to mandate that people in this country get vaccinated. I said that wouldn't happen. And I'll say it now, and it's still not going to happen. But what you will see is local mandates. The president certainly has the right and the authority to mandate vaccines for federal workers, which he's done at the executive branch. He also has the authority to mandate for those who are in the healthcare system utilizing Medicare and Medicaid. What I'm saying right now is that now that we know these vaccines work and we're still dealing with a crisis, I am in favor under certain circumstances to make mandates for vaccines, and we're already seeing it. We have maybe up to 1,000 colleges and universities are saying, if you want to come into class in person, you need to be vaccinated. There are many businesses that are saying, if you want to work for us, you've got to be vaccinated. Those are not central mandates. Those are
1: local mandates. Question for the fall. Is it safe to put 18,000 people inside a basketball or a hockey arena, just to name two, without any proof of vaccination?
2: You know, again, that, that gets to a, to a very controversial topic, and that is the proof of vaccination and who is going to document and validate and verify the vaccination. I think it's perfectly reasonable for some sports organizations to say, in order to come into this particular activity, you need to be vaccinated. And that is actually going on. There are certain situations where if you want to enter into an activity, you've got to show that you're vaccinated.
1: As you well know, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb has been a regular on Face the Nation. He has a meta-criticism of the CDC that it is too slow and too dependent on backward-looking analysis. What's your response to that?
2: You know, one of the things that the CDC has a disadvantage of is a healthcare system that's a bit fragmented. I believe that Scott uh, Gottlieb, who you referred to, who's a colleague and a friend, was referring to that if you look at the UK system with their essential universal coverage and you look at the situation in Israel that has essentially four uh, HMOs, it's very easy to get data from them because it's all in immediate real time that you get the data. Not so easy in our country. Could the CDC do better? Absolutely. And they admit that they can do better, but it is sometimes more difficult given the healthcare system that we have.
1: We've got a minute to go, and this is slightly unfair, Dr. Fauci, but are we paying too close attention or not close enough attention to Israel?
2: I'm paying very close attention to Israel. I'm on the phone with my colleagues in Israel Uh, fairly frequently, and interacting through emails fairly frequently. So I believe that we are paying just about a right amount of attention to Israel. They have a lot of very important information that is helping us out a lot, including the UK. We have some very good colleagues in the UK that we are in continual contact with.
1: Dr. Anthony Fauci, thank you so very much. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. But for those on the podcast platforms and on CBSN, stay tuned for your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. It's been The Takeout. We'll see you next week.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome to your takeout, Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Our special guest this week, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Chief Medical Advisor to the President of the United States, Joseph R. Biden. Dr. Fauci, I think this is a well-understood part of the conversation heading into the fall, but I want you to put a pin into it. We should all get a flu shot, correct?
2: Absolutely, Major. Definitely we should get a flu shot. We don't want to have the conflating outbreaks of flu and continuation of the COVID outbreak. That would be confusing from a public health standpoint and deleterious from a personal health standpoint.
1: And for the person in my audience who might say, well, geez, Dr. Fauci, am I okay? I mean, I'm getting all this stuff shot into me. I mean, I I should really seriously get a flu shot even though I'm vaccinated and then maybe a little bit later, maybe six or seven weeks, get another booster. I mean, all that shots, I I need all that, right?
2: Yes, (laughs) the answer is simply (laughs) yes. The vaccines that you're talking about are safe and they're effective. So you should be taking those vaccines.
1: Yes. Not and only- to, use a, uh, to use a kindergarten metaphor, they all play in the sandbox together just fine. Is that correct?
2: They do. There's no evidence at all that if you get more than one vaccine against different diseases that you're going to have any problem.
1: Is it a problem right now, Dr. Fauci, with people falsely claiming that they're immunocompromised and getting a booster ahead of time?
2: Well, you want everyone to be honest about what their status is. You know, sometimes it's very difficult to absolutely check on everyone. But you would hope that people are honest and straightforward when they talk about their needs for a vaccine.
1: I have talked to friends who said, well, I'm just going to go get a booster. I'm not going to wait. Is that a good idea? That is to say you're not immunocompromised, you're not in the FDA identified cohort, but you get it anyway. Is there something wrong with that? Is there something injurious to the larger system?
2: Well, only if it interferes with somebody else getting a vaccine. And since we have uh, enough vaccines to not only vaccinate everybody, but boost everybody, I don't think it it hurts the larger system We just don't recommend it because you want things to be given to people after they have, one, been tested in the appropriate circumstances, the data have been thoroughly evaluated by the FDA, and the CDC with their advisory committee makes a recommendation. That's the totally correct way to do it. I mean, obviously, many people thus far have not abided by that Particular recommendation and have gone ahead and asked for a booster. Uh, You know, the chances are that it's going to be fine that they did that, but we would have preferred that we do it in an orderly fashion according to the right regulatory approvals and the right recommendations.
1: Got it. In the last three minutes or so we have in the Especial, Dr. Fauci. Probably nothing has brought more parents to their knees in this pandemic than trying to figure out schooling for their children. What's the best way to do things? What's the best for their education? What's the best for their socialization? We're a little bit into the school year nationwide now. Some school districts were ahead of others. But what are your conclusions about what we've accomplished or what we still need to work on? Do we need More masks, more testing, fewer quarantines. What have we learned in the last five or six weeks about the back-to-school experiment in our country?
2: Well, the first and foremost is that we can now vaccinate children from 12 uh, older. So those children should get vaccinated. They are under-vaccinated. We've only vaccinated about 50% of those kids. Number two, you should surround the unvaccinated children as well as the vaccinated children with people who are vaccinated, who are eligible, be they teachers, personnel in the school, or anyone that would come into contact with the children in the school setting. That's number two. Number three, appropriately do testing when necessary, when the situation needs it. Number four, get good ventilation in the schools, and all of those things together should allow the children to come back to school safely. Vaccination, testing, and other things such as good ventilation.
1: You did not say the Q word, and as you know, Dr. Fauci, some districts have had this sort of hit the button of quarantine thing if they get a a positive case. Without using the word overreaction, are there better ways to address the needs of the children and the school than a large-scale or even small-scale quarantine?
2: Well, I, I imply that, but I'll be explicit about it when I use the word testing, Major. So what some schools are doing now is that when someone in a class who is exposed to others get infected, rather than quarantining the whole class, you essentially test them every single day and you will keep out A person who winds up getting infected if you do it every single day. That's sort of a testing way to keep the kids in school. That is being adopted in some schools right now.
1: Dr. Anthony Fauci, I can't thank you enough for the time. We covered a lot of ground. I'm deeply indebted to you, sir. I know you're very busy. That's it for The Takeout Outtake Especial. Folks, we'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson,
0: jake rosen and ashley armstrong cbsn production by eric susanan follow us on facebook twitter and instagram at takeout podcast that's at takeout podcast and for more go to takeoutpodcast.com
1: the takeout is a production of cbs news